Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Regular listeners may notice that this episode is coming out a little bit later than normal. That's because two of us were not permitted to see the film uh, Meg 2 in a press screening. We had to hot foot it to the cinema on first thing on a Friday morning. Not great, but the things we do to create podcasts. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Catherine Bray. And I'm Yasmin Omar. On the show this week, the giant shark is back to battle Jason Statham in Meg 2. Traumas are unearthed in Paris memories. And on Film Club, the sharks are regular size, but they got clever in Deep Blue Sea. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Also just worth noting, last week's episode, we talked about You Hurt My Feelings and got to speak to Nicole Holofcener. And actually the film's release was pushed and we weren't fully aware of that. And it is now out on the 8th on Amazon Prime. Very much worth catching up with. So, how are you both? I mean, Catherine, we've had a cursed morning together, so maybe we should go with Yasmin, who's had hopefully a less bad time. How are you, Yasmin? Yeah, good. I mean, it's been a nice summer. I've seen Barbie three times. I've seen Mission Impossible three times. Just been a really nice time at the movies, to be honest. Well, I mean, these things are going to change because there are quite a few terrible weeks ahead. So, I mean, I hope people have, like, saved up their Barbie and Oppenheimer rewatches because, like... If you want to go to the cinema, those are your best options, I think, for the next few weeks. Catherine, are you recovered from what we've just been through? Do you want to explain what happened? I mean, as you say, it's been it's been a good few weeks. We've had Barbie, Oppenheimer, then Talk to Me last week. The Turtles movie is really good. And then it's just fallen off a Mariana-like trench into the depths. We've been to see the Meg 2, or we tried to see the Meg 2. We tried to go to the press screening. There weren't apparently any spots at the press screening, so we tried to go to the first public screening at the O2, which was in 4DX um, at the Cineworld there, only to get there and be told that the 4DX screen was full of smoke and would not be screening the Meg 2 for us. So I said, oh, well, that's fine. We don't need, you know, we don't need 4DX. It's fine. We'll just watch the regular Meg 2. And they said, oh, no, no, this, the entire cinema is subject to a blackout. So we had to hot foot it up to the Angel Institute. No one has ever tried so hard to see a film. This is the point I'm making. <laughs> 
Oh God! I mean, like it's it's it it was quite the experience, and then at the end of it, we watched the Meg Two, which we'll get into shortly. But yeah, I mean, it's been a very very frustrating week. There was a great piece in the Guardian by Manuela Lazic about kind of the issue with trying to do film journalism when they're trying to fill these space with influencers, and you know, Meg Two is like such a perfect example because tiny screening room. We couldn't get in, even though we were doing coverage. And uh, but then they did giant influencer screenings, which we were not allowed to go to. Yeah, and they call it a fan screening. I, I mean, can you be a fan of something you haven't seen yet? I don't know. I don't know. We I, we know what they mean by fan screening, but also it's really unfair because Layla and I are both big shark girls. You know, we we were ready to love the Meg too, and and be on board that that massive shark train. But anyway, they served um, pizza at the press screening, and someone said like the better the food like the worst of film which I thought was quite an, an interesting aphorism yeah it's not always true is it because sometimes like the stunts I mean I remember at Bridesmaids they had Andrex puppies these cute little puppies being held by uh, male strippers with their shirts off and that's always stuck in my memory as, a, as an example of great film great pre-screening stunt but I think you're right about the food it's specifically the quality of the food isn't it yeah I mean, the, it's the quality also, I think, of the things for you to take pictures in front of is a pretty bad sign. Like normally if there's a really immersive experience as you enter, you're in for something pretty terrible ahead. But, you know, cause I guess the incentive is to create good social media posts rather than the truth. I like it when there's the total mismatch between the nature of the pre-screening razzle-dazzle and the film itself. So you remember... The Northmen, super serious. We've got Skarsgårds like battling through Vikings of the year 900 or something like that. And then in the Odeon West End, a DJ and a beanie cap dropping beats <laughs> before the Northman. But you see, this is why yeah. this is why um, the studios hate us. It's, it's this kind of chat. The Instagram people are like, hey, wasn't it amazing? There was a DJ. Like, this is why this happens. I truly, I mean, I don't believe in a lot of conspiracy theories, but I genuinely believe not one of those DJs has ever been plugged into anything. <laughs> I think it's just a little person stood at the front of the screen to kind of like create vibes. You know, like you kind of, you, you know, you do those sometimes at bat mitzvahs where you just get somebody whose job it is to kind of like keep the roof raised. Yeah, that I believe is the true purpose of that DJ. I even I remember ages ago hearing about a widely touted director's uh, spot at the LFF. Like, oh, and we've got so and so to DJ. Um, I think it might even have been Ben Wheatley, and it was absolutely a complete lie. It was just all playing off of somebody's iPad. <laughs> yeah, well, we've been lied to in so many regards. I don't understand how we're supposed to have like faith in the world when <laughs> they tell us that there is absolutely no place where the Meg Two will be screening. Are we visually recording? <laughs> this podcast because if we are you can see my cat standing up against a wall i've got pigeons nesting in my wall grotesque baby pigeons that look like the sort of thing that the meg 2 has at the bottom of the trench they look like these under underwater sea creatures um, my cat is very interested in them and now you all know about that irrelevant detail <laughs> i have to say i did find the image of those baby pigeons in your wall more distressing than anything <laughs> in the meg 2 which is a shame um, a sh- um, it would be nice to be terrified by a movie like that yeah i mean i guess we, we might might as well get into it. First up, it's the Meg 2. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. (laughs) 
Jonas Taylor leads a research team on an exploratory dive into the deepest depths of the ocean. Their voyage spirals into chaos when a malevolent mining company threatens their mission and forces them into a high-stakes battle for survival. Pitted against colossal prehistoric sharks and relentless environmental plunderers, they must outrun, outsmart, and outswim their merciless predators. So, Catherine, fellow shark girl, not that many sharks in this. <laughs> Long stretches I mean, with few sharks. On paper, it sounds like a masterpiece, doesn't it? I, I, I love all of those elements, but when you're sat there in the cinema, it doesn't really come together in the way that you would be hoping. Um, yes, there aren't really enough sharks. One of the sharks, they're toying with that kind of late stage Jurassic Park franchise idea of um, sharks that could could be tamed by a sufficiently charismatic person. Um, but this guy is not particularly charismatic and they leave it kind of ambiguous as to whether the shark is really listening to him. I mean, fine if you needed to pad out the runtime, but it is, it's like a good two hours already, this, this adventure with the megalodons. And I don't know, I mean, I love the idea of megalodons, but I think in both the first movie and in this, there's a sort of scale issue. Jaws is much scarier because the shark is a kind of a size that we can comprehend. These fishes, I would say they seem like they change size a little bit. Like sometimes they're big enough to swallow a, you know, a small motor launch hole. Sometimes they're big enough to take out something the size of an oil rig. Uh, sometimes they're interested in um, tracking down like a, a tiny dog called Pippin. That from the point of view of the shark at the size at which it's been established must be like if you know I'm trying to find a tic tac. It's I don't know or, or something smaller than a tic tac. What's smaller than a tic tac? It's that it's that kind of I don't know. It just doesn't really come together as a villain uh, for me. Um, this shark or sharks. Yeah, and and their behaviour. I mean, I I love sharks. I spend quite a lot of time with sharks. That's a weird thing to say. Now I I, How do I you scuba mean dive that? a lot and like <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I scuba dive a lot and then I've also done a few times the thing where you go in the cage and you go and you see the big ones wow. and stuff. Like I really like Amazing. shark obsessive. I'm so yes. jealous. That's terrifying. Fun, but fun fact about me, I also get terribly seasick. So I think I probably have the human record of having thrown up on the most sharks and we're at about four. <laughs> So you're happier in the water with sharks than on the boat. Well, it's the nature of scuba diving. There's always times where you've got to wait on the boat. And if it's more than three minutes and sharks turn to circle boats, I will be throwing up on a shark. I'm glad I wasn't the only right. one who didn't grow out of like being seasick. Because I was told as a child, like, oh, you'll be fine. Like, just wait till you're an adult. It never stops. <laughs> no, lies. Lies that they told us. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Back to the Meg 2. Uh, Yasmin, for you, you came into this fresh. You had not seen Meg 1. I don't feel like that's actually required viewing because, like, the plot here is pretty simple. But, I mean, what did you make of this? Was it kind of what you expected? A kind of trashy, fun B-movie? Well, I will confess, like, I'm not a shark girl. Um, so I find sharks to be quite terrifying. And therefore, like, I don't really like watching shark films because like when I am on occasion to be on holiday and be in the water I don't want to think about the sharks being there so in terms of this I don't think it was what I expected in that like it wasn't fun like I thought it was going to be amusing I feel that the tone isn't quite right it's so self-serious and I wish it was more goofy and entertaining also like I don't really love Jason Statham like fun fact I didn't realize as well that he was a diver I assume you guys realize this mm. like, he used to be a professional diver so that's interesting to me um and also like his unwillingness to use a body double in the vein of Tom Cruise but that doesn't really matter when it's like so CGI heavy like why why does it matter that he's not using a body double when he's like you know against a green screen I just thought that was kind of a silly thing to add and he's just not my like 
brand of Diamond Geezer. Like I prefer a Ray Winston kind of character. He, he like I feel like his face always looks like he's trying to make it into a fist. You know, he's just like so strained, and every delivery is a growl. I just like can't warm to him as a performer. I'm afraid. But also, I think with this film. It was kind of weird that the Meg wasn't the main predator, like in the final like big battle sequences. There are like two other creatures that are introduced. And I was like, why why are you here? I thought the Meg was the apex predator. Yeah, totally agree. There's about five different movies going on at once. There's like you know, a movie where you're supposed to care about the annoying 14-year-old girl, sort of scrappy-doo type character. And that doesn't really belong to the same movie as cheering when the evil CEO lady gets chomped by, as you say, these ancillary creatures who show up in the in the final act and also in the um we should say i guess that this one has a kind of a prologue set you know in the distant distant millions and millions of years ago with a t-rex getting getting eaten by the megalodon which i think is where we first see creatures a bit like the ones that take over in the final act but yeah i don't know i mean that sequence is lifted from one of the novels and in the novel the the megalodon eats the t-rex and then we cut to uh, Jonas, the Jason Statham character, explaining that, of course, T-Rexes and Megalodons never coexisted. They were from completely different periods in the fossil record. I've only described this to you now as part of my academic presentation for a bit of fun, essentially. This film isn't doing that. It's just sort of showing you them coexisting because I guess that's cool. I don't know. I guess. I mean, was it cool? <laughs> There's something like deeply uncool about this film. And like when they announced Ben Wheatley is this, I genuinely believed that he was doing it because he believed in this project. Like I was like, you know, Barry Jenkins might be doing a blanking two for the money. Questlove might be doing the Aristocats for the money. Sarah Poli, don't resent it. You go do Bambi for the money. But I thought that Ben Wheatley cared about these sharks. And we were going to get something so much better than the first one. And the weird thing is, it's almost exactly the same as the first one. And then the issue for me came is like, A, I kind of feel like I know too much about sharks to really like, you know, get on board with a lot of shark movies. Because I'm just like, that wouldn't happen. And like, like that isn't their behavior. And like, why would sharks be attracted to light? It's particularly ones that live in the dark. Like that doesn't make sense as a motivator why would they want motors and not the sound of paddling that would be instinctively the way that they would pursue prey it would be stuff sorry i digress um but post the titanic submersible disaster i now also just understand way too much about submersibles to enjoy this movie the timing of that was pretty unlucky, wasn't it? We we're all there going, well, actually, you know, uh, 3,000 feet, you would be crushed to the size of a swim. And then these guys are there going, it's 25,000 feet down, but Jason Statham can swim around outside. You know, he can do it because, like, fish can do it. And, you know, of course, fish that live in the Mariana Trench have adapted to those conditions. Some of them die, I think, if you bring them up to the surface, because that's where they're designed to live. We're designed to live on the surface. And you've got Jason Statham swimming around at 25,000 feet down. It's just, I don't know, I guess someone who hasn't seen the movie might say, yeah, but it's supposed to be a fun shark movie. Don't get so hung up on the science, guys. And the problem, I think, with this film is that it asks you to get hung up on the science sometimes. There will be these sort of scientific, pseudoscientific explanations for things. It's like just junk all of that if you're going to do that kind of thing. It's like, it's I don't know, it's like if you set a movie in space and spent a lot of time explaining 
how like the vacuum of space works and then just decided it didn't matter and have had somebody go outside of the spaceship and sort of swim through deep space for a bit and they were fine because they're hard as nails. Or in this case, because he breathed through his nose. Or something, yeah, like, <laughs> honestly. And I, I, there are movies that I would defend that make those kinds of leaps of logic but they're doing so from within the kind of movie where we're clued into the fact that you're not supposed to expect it to hang together. The Meg keeps making these sort of lurches for an almost, I guess, Jurassic Park-like plausibility, at least the first Jurassic Park, where they did kind of try and keep things within the realms of scientific possibility, assuming you make that first leap of we've brought dinosaurs back. I guess that's the problem. We've all got it in us to make one leap. And the leap in this movie is megalodons exist. And then it kind of wants us to make 10 additional leaps on top of that. Yeah. I mean, it just... The more you kind of think about it, the more it does feel like something that was kind of cobbled together by a sort of marketing team who just knew that the first one made tons of money and didn't really want to do anything beyond that. I mean, Yasmin, for you, are you a Ben Wheatley fan? This is the first Ben Wheatley film I had seen, actually. So I feel this was kind of <laughs> baptism by fire. And um, looking at his filmography, it seems that he's done like a lot of different genres and he must have a distinct style. And I know that Scorsese and Edgar Wright are fans of him, but here was very workmanlike direction. So I don't really know what to think of him as a director based on this film, but maybe I should go and pursue some of his other work, I would say. I did have a problem as well with like how the underwater looked. I just feel like ever since Avatar, The Way of Water, I just can't look at underwater stuff anymore in the same way. It's just so murky and difficult to see what's going on. And there's a moment where like a shoal of fish come at them and it's just so blurred. And I just could not make sense of like the geography and the space of what was going on. And it was like, extremely ugly so that was my issue with how it looked yeah no I think you're right Avatar honestly that was a that was a film I actually left um last year I wasn't reviewing it and I sat through 90 minutes and I was like I haven't sort of enjoyed a single second of this so there's no real reason to think that I will like any more of it and I left the cinema uh obviously couldn't do that with Meg 2 because uh, I was due on here in an hour or so after it finished. <laughs> but yeah, it was this close, you know. Yeah, I, it, it, I don't know if I would have left. I mean, definitely for me, the, the final act is the best one because the final act is the one that actually gets fun. I did keep wondering whether Ben Wheatley actually in any sense directed this. And I'm so sad that this is your introduction to him, Yasmin, because he really is very good. But... Yeah, there was one kind of shot in the final act that is like the camera is basically from the perspective of like the sharks as like larynx. And I was like, ah, there he is. That's my guy. (laughs) And then then it was done. Most of the time, though, the shots are just like the shark coming at you again and again. And it just got really repetitive after a while. It does that thing that's such a pet peeve of mine to like play pop songs, like to make you feel good, like to ones that you remember. And so it's like simulating having a good time when you hear, oh. All of the songs in it, like the gorilla song. Under pressure is in there, like, mm. oh, we see what you've done there because yeah. the water pressure, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was either a Mandarin or Cantonese version of um, that Ting Ting song, which I'm blanking on the name of now. Um, but yeah, it's just like, oh, here's a song, you know, you're having a great time, aren't you? And it's like, no, not really. <laughs> you haven't put enough effort in for me to be having a good time. Yeah, I just, the characters all feel like they've sort of wandered in from different movies. You've got a sort of like a Michael Bay type guy going, oh, hell no, after the last time I got myself some skills and, uh, you know, like 
he's there. You've got this 14-year-old scrappy-doo character that is the one person I was hoping would get eaten by one of the sharks and, and you know, spoiler, but she doesn't. It's that type of movie. Um, it would be great if the dog got eaten as well. And then a bunch of these people are sort of fairly interchangeable. And then Statham, who, I mean, I like Statham and I think I would have despaired of this movie slightly more if, if, if not for his presence, but it didn't feel like he was kind of necessarily in the same film as everybody else. Yeah, I, I mean, I've got a certain fondness for Statham, but I just, cause I, you know, I think it's that thing, if you watch Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels at the right age, he sort of like embeds himself into you and, you know, you, then it's just like seeing an old friend. But I could not understand why anyone thought that what we wanted was to see Jason Statham fighting other guys for like nebulous purposes around like money and protecting an environment rather than bring back the fucking sharks like that's what we're here for (laughs) yeah there's like an 80s 90s action aesthetic in there jostling with all of the kind of jurassic world and uh, and all of that it's just muscle-bound guys in a a jungle that looks like nam with with machine guns all of a sudden you're like which film have you it's almost like imagine if you imagine like a bunch of different studios all shooting different stuff at the same time um, and then uh, back in the golden era of Hollywood, they would sometimes shoot a studio quickie to make the most of the set. So this feels like they've shot kind of five studio quickies all at once, plus with the added joy of, of some fairly schlonky CGI. Yeah. God, what a, what, a, what a sad time we live in that we made all of that effort to kind of <laughs> come and see Ben Wheatley break our hearts. I mean, Yasmin, you were at least at, got, managed to get into the press screaming. Like, what was the atmosphere there? Would people seem like deeply disappointed? Um, there, were, there was a bit of laughter, actually, about look, with the um, Paige Kennedy quips that you mentioned, Catherine. Um, I don't know if it was like that at your screening, but we, yeah, we had pizza. So people were in a good mood after that, if nothing else. Um, I think, yeah, similarly to what you guys were saying, I think it was the the last, the end act that really brought people into it more because that's where the, primarily the action is. Like, even though it's called Meg 2, Code on the Trench, the stuff in the trench is maybe the worst stuff in the whole film. It's just very boring. And then walking three kilometers and you don't really understand, are they, are they close to their destination? are they not like and also people being eaten off screen as well i'm just like the whole point of these films is like the visceral chomp of being eaten by a shark and the fact that the megs just swallow these people whole i thought was like a missed opportunity and the fact that it's such a it's a 12a certificate as well it's just trying to appeal to too many demographics rather than being like a shark attack film which is what the people who are interested will like sign up to go and see yeah, totally. I didn't realise it was a 12A. Yeah, I Googled I mean, that was, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, it just felt like with the first Meg, the resounding note that I was getting from everyone who watched it, who did think it was like perfectly fun or whatever, it was just like it needed to be way more violent because otherwise like you just feel like you're kind of watching something of no substance. Like they, sharks aren't scary unless you have like a sense of like them, what it'd be like to be bitten by one. And like there was no scary moment in this entire film. And then, but if you're not going to make it scary, why did they hire Ben Wheatley? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's like trying to make a Saw film without any traps in it or something. Like, what is that? It's just, you know, this is core to the premise of a shark movie that we need to see people getting chomped and that that needs to be something other than a kind of dusting of CGI blood. It's another scale problem with the Megs, really, I think. Um, and this is obviously not Ben Wheatley's fault. It's it's built into the premise. But these sharks can inhale a human being. And you're not getting that kind of glorious thing at the end of Jaws with Quint being chomped in half and gurgling around and the blood coming out of his mouth. Because with the Megs, it's just like, whoomph, and you're gone, which I think makes them inherently less scary than a regular-sized shark. Yeah. 
bigger, certainly not better in this case. I mean, is there anything to kind of, I feel like we're being kind of a bit of a bummer. Is there anything to that you guys think to recommend this? Like, <laughs> is there anyone you particularly enjoyed? There's a couple of lines that were sort of so completely the line from you know, a parody of this type of thing that I got a sort of sideways chuckle out of them when people are saying, oh, God, I can't remember it exactly. It's sort of st- stuff like um, the impossible is now possible, like that kind of trailer speak. Um, and there's such a lot of that, all that kind of snarky, quippy, I don't think this is a very good idea. I'll drink to that type type of dialogue. And sometimes that was kind of almost to the point of super parody and I was getting a kick out of that. I don't know, that's pretty thin, isn't it, for something to praise about the film? I think that P- Paige Kennedy was probably the best part for me just because he clearly was having fun. Like I feel everyone else was just like there for a paycheck, you know, and he's making his little quips. Like admittedly, they're not that funny, but he's having a good time and I found that to be the most infectious out of the cast who just generally look miserable to be there. Yeah, that's true. You what you really want the actors to at least go for it and kind of believe in it in in this type of movie and yeah, I think you're totally right. Like so many of them are just very wallpaper. Yeah. I mean, I I, I thought Paige Kennedy was actually was pretty charming, but I was like with the first Meg, there is this kind of running joke that he works in the ocean and he doesn't know how to swim. And just because you acknowledge that joke as being racist doesn't mean it's like not racist to write that for your black character. And then they kept doing it again in this one. (laughs) I think they're trying, they're trying, they're hoping that he will, he can follow in the footsteps of LL Cool J and Deep Blue Sea who is the charming chef who is also not in the oceanographic uh, speciality facility because of his oceanographic skills. He's there because he's a chef. So he's like this literal fish out of water. And they're going for that, but they, they kind of mess it up. Yeah, they certainly do. Oh, God, what a disappointing day. I mean, and I love sharks. You just need to put the sharks on screen. And then the film made me kind of depressed because I kept thinking about that poor Meg in the small area and then thinking about blackfish and that little orcotillicum <laughs> and the miserable life they've had. I, did, I don't know how they're keeping that thing captive. You can't keep great white sharks uh, in captivity like they die. Um, so how are they keeping like, the supersized version of a great white shark? I mean, it's not the sort of detail that that this kind of film is inviting you to interrogate. But the fact that you end up wondering about that stuff is a problem with the film because you ought to be having so much fun, you're not wondering about this stuff. That's that's the core of, of this. Like obviously we sound like the fun police coming up with our scientific reasons that this doesn't work but this is what happens when you allow people's minds to wander in a film which should have no time for mind wandering well well so yasmin we won't be inducting you into a shark film girl I'm resigning from from Shark Film Guy. I mean, uh, this, between this and the Sharknado franchise, it's not been a good couple of decades. <laughs> yeah, still, still just the good one, just one, just one really great one, and then we're holding out hope. Hey, now, deep we see. Oh. I will. Well, we'll come on to that later, right? Yeah, I mean, good versus great, I suppose. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it 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 does seem pretty unfair what we marine biology film fan Venn diagram people have been given. <laughs> I want to see it like maybe we, it's always great whites, 
mako sharks, bull sharks and tiger sharks, because they're like the four most dangerous species of shark to, to mankind, right? But there are around 200, I think, I mean, Layla will know, around 200 species of shark. I know that, you know, in nature, most of them aren't dangerous, but can we have like some mutated evil forms of those other 200 species of shark? I think that could bring some much needed variety to the genre. According to Jacques Cousteau, the most dangerous shark that he would ever feel was the oceanic white tip. Ah. Where's that guy's movie nice yeah we'll get him in <laughs> hammerheads dangerous because also dangerous. when you see one you're about to see fifty thousand more because they travel in packs there we go i mean i don't know if any filmmakers are listening to this but there are more sharks out there than you don't have to be bringing back the megalodon every time we've sort of tried him twice and it doesn't wildly work ben wheatley if you're listening <laughs> i hope he isn't <laughs> i i'm guessing he is not going to read the reviews i'm guessing he's not going to listen to the podcast i think this was probably checkbook and thank you next please well, it is the famous story about uh, Michael Caine who missed the Oscars because he was making his terrible Jaws sequel. And he said that he'd never seen the film, but he really enjoyed the house in the Bahamas that it afforded him. And that's a film that's like not any good at all, but um, it's still kind of more fun to watch than, than this was, I think. Even though the shark roars. The shark does roar. The shark roars in, in Jaws for the Revenge. Uh, it's also sort of psychically connected to Ellen Brody, Police Chief Brody's wife from the first one. She has these these sepia-tinted visions of things that only her husband knew, but he's dead, so are they being psychically projected to her by the shark? Maybe something like that? It's, yeah. And it's so messed up because they, that film establishes that poor Chief Brody died because of, like, fear, basically. And I was like, no, Jaws is about him conquering his fear. How dare you sully this man's legacy? Yeah, totally, totally. I, I think maybe the, one of the reasons that the Meg one works a little bit better than this one is you've got those kinds of Jaws-type archetypes in there, like Statham's character in that one is more clearly, I think, the sort of Quint-type, tough man of the people will go after this thing and, and get it for you. You've got the sort of Rain Wilson from The Office, you know, Dwight from The Office playing the kind of billionaire. He, he plays him a bit like Elon Musk, which is funny. But, you know, that's like the evil mayor from Jaws. Those archetypes don't really exist in the Meg 2, I don't think. They just feel like pale copies of archetypes, which is not a good place to be in. Oh, I'm sad now. Yasmin, you're not going to be inducted into <laughs> of shark fans. Oh, well, I'll do my best. I'll try and find you a couple of good ones. Yes, I'm maybe, in uh, there's, there's maybe three. The Katy Perry shark had more charisma than this one, honestly. <laughs> uh, but Yasmin, do you want to go first in getting some scores on this? In anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect. Okay, anticipation was probably a one because I hadn't seen the first one. Not particularly interested in sharks and not particularly interested in the work of Jason Statham and hadn't seen a Ben Wheatley film so a plethora of reasons and also the fact that the studio were trying to hide it from critics so I thought that they knew that they had a stinker on their hands and then I think enjoyment too it was it was fine it's just a bit dull I found my mind wondering about you know the science as we discussed previously and just wishing there were more shark attacks and things of that nature to keep me amused because I was there to have fun and just did not have that much fun. And then in retrospect, probably a two. I'm glad we did this so soon after we watched the film because I will have forgotten it by next week. I hope that happens for me too. Um, <laughs> what about you? What are your scores? I'm going to say it's a, it's a, th it's a three, one, one. And like, the three maybe was optimistic, but I was just holding out hope. It's it's sharks, it's Ben Wheatley, it's a summer movie, it's Statham, it's got lots of elements that I really connect with. And then yeah, I just didn't 
I just really struggled and I think will continue to struggle. So, yeah, sorry, 311. That might be the lowest I've gone on the Little White Lies podcast. <laughs> and we made you struggle so much to go and see this <laughs> film. That you yeah, I think I'm at like 421. I was rooting for it. I was really rooting for it. I really love Ben Wheatley. I thought surely they'd let him make it a bit gnarly and scary in a way that like the first one was tired of being but like oh what an absolute mess and I don't understand how all of those themes can come together and be boring like the the, the sin of the film is that it's also boring <laughs> yeah like the, the only thing that it shouldn't be yeah Oh, well, moving on we have a less boring film I would say it's Paris Memories <laughs> 45 Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Three months after surviving a terrorist attack in a bistro, Mia is still traumatised and unable to recall the events of that night. In an effort to move forward, she investigates her memories and retraces her steps. So, Yasmin, I mean, this is quite a difficult film in like many ways and one that kind of relies so much on a central performance of its actress in order to kind of like sell this journey because it's a very much like an internal story about her coming to terms with trauma and like recapturing these memories. I mean, how did you find her performance? I thought she was just fantastic. I love her. I think she's just such an interesting actress. Um, I profiled her earlier this year, actually. And I think she kind of seemed to spring fully formed to like UK audiences because we didn't see a lot of the rom-coms that she did like in France that just were very culturally specific and didn't translate or get UK releases. So we kind of see her as this actress who like works with auteurs and things. But like she did have like quite a difficult path to get to where she is today to be this like very renowned dramatic actress. And she won the César, like the French Oscar for this performance and I just think it's so beautifully done because like you can kind of see like the way the trauma affects her like on her face she has such an expressive face and she starts out like kind of quite dazed and shell-shocked and then like you kind of see the emotion like bubbling up and like there's never really these kind of like big cathartic moments that you'd expect from a film like this and I think that's what makes it all the more powerful is that she knows like how to keep the emotion bubbling under the surface and so dialed down I just think it's a really 
nuanced and interesting performance. And I was surprised it kind of won an award because I feel like acting like this never gets Oscars or things like that. So maybe it's just a kind of like francophone quirk that they like performances like this. But this is the kind of acting that I really respond to. And what about you, Catherine? Is this the sort of performance that you really respond to as well? It's certainly the sort of performance that I admire. I think she's being asked to do an enormous amount to kind of carry the film purely through gestures, facial expressions. I mean, like you say, Yasmin, often the times when people get Oscars and things, there's like the obvious moment that's the Oscar clip where they get to make a big speech or they sing I Dreamed a Dream or whatever it is, like that's the showcase moment. And this kind of doesn't have that. And so you do need a Virginie Efira for that kind of work. I love her I mean she's so brilliant in stuff like Benedetta like she's got range Benedetta is completely the polar opposite of this film and I must say Benedetta is more maybe where my kind of personal tastes lie that's like a Paul Verhoeven film where she plays a highly sexual nun who takes over a convent in medieval times in Italy and that's very much my jam this is like not necessarily the kind of film that I naturally gravitate towards but it's it's a really fine example of that sort of subtle acting showcase um, and, you know, dealing with an incredibly tough subject. Yeah. I mean, how did you feel, Yasmin, it, it kind of dealt with these like very sensitive issues? I mean, it's, 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 it's not an easy thing to take on both terrorism in some regard and kind of make it about somebody's like personal journey. Mm. Yeah, I thought it was really interestingly done, actually. I don't know if you guys saw this film November, which treats this exact same subject matter um, and it's starring Jean Dujardin. It came out like it had a very limited release in June, but essentially it's like the cop's point of view on this same attack. And so it's quite interesting to watch these two films in dialogue because that one is very you know, muscular and kind of propaganda, quite glossy, like it's entertaining, but it feels like a bit sensationalist in its like presentation of what happened. And there's only a very short scene with the victims of the of the attack. And it's kind of used to work out what happened and who the perpetrators were. Whereas this is like what I prefer because it's more of a character study. And I like that it, um, it's not just Virginie's character as well. It kind of expands its approach. So it's like the cooks and the waitresses. And you get like voiceover starts being from her character and her point of view on it. But it kind of widens and it's this kaleidoscope of all the different people who were affected. And I think it's very personal for the filmmaker Alice Winnicore because her brother Jeremy was um, there at the Clan attacks and she apparently was texting him like while he was there hiding so I just think it did it well and I like that it didn't really do it doesn't even say the word Clan. it doesn't deal with at all with the wider like sociopolitical context of it it's very much just like in the headspace of the people who survived it yeah, I mean it's definitely a, a film that kind of is very like preoccupied with like this woman's like headspace but I'm wondering was that able to like really sustain your interest Catherine? I mean I did uh, I don't know that it has sort of an enormous amount of narrative momentum I mean does it need to it's a it's a character study it's kind of one of those types of films where people would say and also Paris is kind of a character in this film I read your review Yasmin really good review but like you say it sort of gives a voice to a, a lot of those kind of minor um characters within the film but it I think sort of is nodding at the idea that actually in an event like that, there are no minor characters. They just happen to have picked this one woman as the kind of lens through which to filter all of this. I was actually in Paris about a month after the attacks and wandered past that, that kind of monument with all of the flowers that, that were laid there. And you could really feel the effect on the city. And I think they've done a really good job of evoking that. 
I mean, I suppose it's sort of the opposite of, you know, what in publishing would be a page turner. Like it's a slow measured film and you need, you do need to concentrate. You, you need to be in the right mood for it. It's not an escapist or a relaxing time at the cinema. So, I mean, I wouldn't sort of suggest it for a Saturday night date movie, but of course not all movies should be Saturday night date movies. It's dealing with an important subject. Yeah, I mean, I, it did feel extremely true that, like, I only read about that personal connection that um, Alice Winnicott had with it afterwards. And, like, once you kind of see it through that lens, it's sort of immediately obvious. But, I mean, Yasmin, any final thoughts on Paris memories? I like the way it, like, presented the trauma with these kind of flashbacks, but also, like, imagined memories and just, like, you're very much in her headspace the whole time. Like, that before the attack, you see someone receive a birthday cake with candles at the restaurant that she's at that is attacked. And then later in the film, like, you see the birthday candles again and, like, how that triggers her and, like, how she how her memory is so kind of malleable at that point as well. Like, if someone suggests that she had a selfish moment and she hid herself in the, the toilet and, like, uh, stopped herself from being attacked and then she imagines that happened, it's just, like, showing, like how susceptible we are to like powers of persuasion at that time and like the difficulty of like you know going through something that's as traumatic as this that can't really be understated oh well we should get some scores on this and like a wild tonal shift from kind of the the entirely unsubtle to the subtle Uh, but Catherine do you want to go first in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect Probably a kind of a four three three for me. I think. I mean, Virginie Efira, I love her, so I'm always going to be a four or five for anything that she's doing. It's probably a three in terms of the experience watching it because of just that feeling that it was easier to respect and admire than kind of really go to bat for. And I don't think that 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 feeling has really changed in retrospect. But um, I would say for anyone with a personal connection to the subject matter, you know, it's well worth a watch and probably would be a, a higher score. Yeah, certainly. I mean, not that I'm wishing anyone has a personal connection with this sort of subject matter. Or with the subject matter in the Meg, that would also be very upsetting. <laughs> um, yeah, so what about you? What are your scores? Um, I'd probably go four in anticipation. Yeah, I love Virginie. I really liked Alice Winnicott's last film, Proxima, as well. And then, yeah, hard to talk about enjoyment with a film like this, but I think a four, I think it was very effective. Like, I cried, I thought it was beautiful. And then five, like, I've thought about this a lot. Like, this is one of my favourite films of the year. I just think it's fantastic. And yeah, it, as Catherine says, you have to be in the right headspace to watch it, but I think it is ultimately rewarding despite being difficult in terms of subject matter beautifully put i mean yeah i i i kind of feel like i'm vacillating between both of your opinions and it would just be a case of like scores wise those would be depending on kind of the mood that i was in that day and yes my brain's been frazzled by the meg too so i'm gonna give it a couple weeks before the rewatch but funner times ahead with rennie harlan's deep blue sea Set in an isolated underwater facility, the film follows a team of scientists and their research on mako sharks in order to fight Alzheimer's disease. The situation plunges into chaos when multiple genetically engineered sharks go on the rampage and flood the facility. So, Catherine, good shark movie. Amazing shark movie. I mean, on on the face <laughs> of it, that synopsis um, 
doesn't sound too dissimilar to something like the Meg, but man, no oh man, the difference with which it is executed. I, I just, yeah, I really love this movie. I, ha- I do have a sort of personal connection to it, although it's in terms of when I first saw the film, which was on a date with my boyfriend when I was 16. Uh, we went to the cinema to see this. I've still got this ticket stub somewhere because I'm a big keeper of things. And then by the time it came out on DVD, I was dating somebody else. And so we had a cute little date at home watching Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> I love this. That could be like an upstyle montage of your like love life, but each time Deep Blue Sea is yeah, there. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't know whether it ever came out on Blu-ray, but I could I could track down a Blu-ray and watch it with someone. <laughs> Deep Blu-ray Sea, something like that. No, I, I love this. It's, it's very much a time capsule. It's, it's very kind of late 90s in its approach to lots of aspects, not least the fact that it's got real sharks in it. We see footage of actual sharks. It's got mechanical sharks, you know, big animatronic guys and there is a bit of cgi in there as well but it's before the sort of cgi rot set in within the industry they'll use it to beef something up rather than to just replace things that should really be done with um, animatronic sharks i mean i'm not going to argue that live sharks ought to be used to make hollywood movies but i'd argue for that where you have the chance (laughs) to use good stock footage i don't i don't know why that's become such a no-no when real shark albeit filmed under other circumstances will always look better than a cgi I shot for for my money but yeah um a wonderful array of characters in this saffron burrows as like the least likable science lady ever she's the one who is desperately trying to find the cure for alzheimer's by genetically engineering sharks to be super smart we're told time and time again a very intelligent lady but it, it doesn't come off on screen uh, test audiences famously hated her character so much that when she survived at the end they gave the film such low ratings that they went back and reshot the ending so that she died and Thomas Jane and LL Cool J are the the two that survive which must have felt heartbreaking for Saffron Burroughs to have to be called back for one day of filming in a tank just the way you get eaten because that's what the test audience have demanded <laughs> happen to you. It's also got Thomas Jane, who's a bit of a, a nearly man in the world of, of action cinema. Yeah, he kind of could have been a Keanu Reeves or a, or a you know, Bruce Willis or something like that, and it never quite came together for him. But he does look good in a wetsuit, and he plays the hero well. LL Cool J, we actually talked about a little bit in the Meg section, but he plays this chef who's a real fish out of water. He's there with, with the quips and the wisecracks and a bird. He's, he's very religious and is constantly talking to Jesus. And I don't know, the charisma just shines through with that one. Plus, he got to do some songs for the soundtrack, which I highly recommend you seek out LL Cool J's Deep Blue Sea soundtrack contributions. And like so many great little bit players, Michael Rappaport, a lot of people know him from Friends. He played Phoebe's boyfriend for a bit. And he's kind of, his his name says it all really. He's called Tom Scoggins. <laughs> and you've even got... I do like that they cast Michael Rappaport as a really smart guy. I love that yeah, for him. That's cute. <laughs> and Stellan Skarsgård, if you please, as one of the first victims. And he plays that real nice and naturalistic. Like just before he dies, he's lighting up a cigarette and his partner kind of looks at him like oh god you really should quit smoking it's not good for you and I think it just does something a little sort of subliminal you're just there kind of going like yeah you know so these these two are fully rounded characters they're probably going to be in this for a while and then then the shark that they've tranquilized at this point suddenly 
comes back to life and rips his arm off. And I won't spoil for anyone who hasn't seen the film his subsequent journey from there, but it is a doozy. I'm, I'm just monologuing now about all the characters in Deep Blue Sea, but I feel like I should let you guys chip in. No, it's true because if people talk about like that psycho reference as if it's like that your kind of famous actor dies like eight minutes in. No, Marion is there till the halfway point. It's way more exciting when that's the point where they unexpectedly get taken out. Spoilers, <laughs> and we haven't even talked about Samuel L. Jackson, who who is is the guy that gets constantly referenced as checking out a bit earlier than we thought he he would in this. Um, but I think the real coup is that he gets taken out in the middle of an inspirational speech. I just don't think it gets better than that for to be Samuel L. Jackson giving you the and we're going to buckle down and we're going to band together and we're going to beat this thing and then chomp right in the middle of it. It's so funny. It's exactly what I wanted to happen to that 14-year-old girl in the Meg. Yeah. I mean, that feels harsh to say about a child, but I am... Annoying on-screen children are subject to completely different rules for me. Um, For filmmakers, they're subject to the rule that they always survive. For me, they're subject to the rule that, like, they should go, they're annoying. I would never wish harm, (laughs) probably don't use it, I would never wish wish harm on an actual child, but annoying children in films. Like, it was such a thing in the 80s and 90s, the precocious child, and then I think people realised it was annoying and stopped doing it for a while, and now apparently they're back. Yeah, unless you watch Face Off, in which case that kid gets killed in like the first three minutes. I was very surprised when I rewatched that. <laughs> but Yasmin, for you, is this a first watch or a rewatch? I had never seen this film. I'd never heard of this film, to be honest with you. So yeah, it was the first watch for me. Um, I had more fun than The Meg 2, you'll be pleased to hear. Yeah, I did enjoy that bit with Samuel L. Jackson. I think LL Cool J was a really like shining star for me. I just really, and even if he like subscribes to that whole trope that I hate, where like people in films act ridiculously and it's clearly like bending over backwards so the plot makes sense like there's a moment where his hand is bleeding and the shark's in the water but he leans over the water to try and save his parrot and you're just like why are you doing this okay but yeah it's a really fun scene where he gets um trapped in an oven and somehow the shark with its fin manages to turn it to 500 degrees so that was very exciting i thought i thought that the um the action was a lot better than in the meg and it kept me engaged even if it was quite you know silly and ridiculous in parts but that's what you want from this kind of film to be honest I love that the kind of sharks have this thing of like, oh, they're super intelligent now, but like their skills do go from understanding how ovens work, like having this very complicated plot by which they're kind of sinking the facility in so they can kind of escape into the outwater. And then at one point they can swim backwards. Who knew? (laughs) (laughs) And also like, um, sorry to bring up James Cameron yet again, but like there were certain scenes where it just kind of looked like Titanic and it just like the comparison suffered for me because there's so many of those like long corridors and the watertight doors and the scenes of people running away in slow-mo and the water coming behind them. And also even the way that um, Saffron Burroughs takes the like shark protein out of its mouth is very similar to Avatar The Way of Water, the way it takes the... Um, the whale elixir thing it just made me think of james cameron quite a lot i don't know if really many harlan would even be mad about that like I, I think i think you're right it's it's they you know titanic was so recent 1997 right and this is 99 and they would have been making it in 1998 right after titanic had come out so it's it's clearly water is having a moment when this film is released and I, I always feel bad for Deep Blue Sea because it came out the same summer as The Blair Witch Project and no one knew that was going to be a huge success. So they didn't kind of counter-program it. It wasn't like, oh, let's all get out of the way of the massive new movie, The Blair Witch Project. So nobody knew and a ton of kind of films got buried by it. And I think Deep Blue Sea sort of unjustly so. Everyone went to see Blair Witch and not Deep Blue Sea, which 
I prefer Deep Blue Sea. That might be a, a maverick, a lone wolf opinion. But yeah, I think it stands up. I don't feel like I have to choose between my children of Deep Blue Sea and the Witch Project. I would just say I love the LL Cool J music video. Um, I would definitely recommend watching that kind of like Busby Berkeley style, like dancing in the water. And he's like rapping about being the shark. I think I think the theme tune that's played in the, the credits is called Deepest Blue Brackets Shark's Fin. So yeah, would recommend a Google. Yeah, he is a real gift to that film, actually. And I do think that it is interesting kind of looking at him with the sort of similar comic relief that was in Meg 2, where like, oh, Cool J does actually have a reasonably rounded out character. He's not just like an object of ridicule. At one point, he explains the theory of relativity really well. (laughs) He's utterly charming. They've given him a bit of backstory. Like we understand, I think that he's given up drinking and then when the sharks come along, he like takes a swig and then some more bad shit happens. And he's like, okay, you know, talking to God, like I, I see, I see your message. It's just, you know, he, it's, it's, it gives the actor something to get his teeth into. Pun unintended. Well, I mean, I'm very sad that I kind of watched them in this order in a way. Uh, I would have liked to have very much done Deep Blue Sea as a, as a balm to Meg 2 where it's actually just it's able to be silly without being like contemptuous of its audience (laughs) but before we go we've got one last thing you guys are going to give us some non-movie recommendations for the week uh Yasmin do you want to go first what's your non-movie recommendation Yes, it is a play that is currently on in the West End at the Gillian Lynn Theatre. It is called Crazy For You, and it's a revival of the 1992 musical that has like Gershwin music, Ira and George Gershwin's music. And it's just like the most joyous time that you will have at the theatre. It's like a real putting on a show kind of musical. It's got all the like 1920s jazz standards that you'll be familiar with, you know, like Embraceable You and Stairway to Paradise and things like that. And it's just really great dancing as well like tap dancing just like scratches a certain part of my brain I just love it so much and there's a scene where um like a woman does tap dancing on point shoes which I'd never seen in my life and was having the best time and the the lead is this guy Charlie Stemp who I wasn't familiar with but he kind of reminded me of like a James Marsden kind of figure and it's just like a really good fun time would recommend for people who love like Gene Kelly musicals it kind of reminded me of an American in Paris and summer stock and things like that Girl, you had me at tap dancing on point that sounds incredible like how mad i just couldn't believe her she was doing it it was just like also she was on this big desk as well so she was like really like elevated and then she's got like i don't know it's like metal on the like end of the point shoe so you can hear it as if it were a tap shoe it was very cool that sounds absolutely amazing uh, Catherine, what about you? Do you have a recommendation? These don't have to be topical or contemporary or anything, do they? They they can just be something we've been into this week. I've been I've been revisiting a whole bunch of Jane Austen stuff. So I listened to the Rosamund Pike audiobook of Sense and Sensibility again, and she does such a good job. Like she kind of, I think she's slightly borrowing from like the Emma Thompson version of it. So for example, um, her Edward Ferrers kind of sounds a bit like Hugh Grant, and that's that's a lot of fun. And then off the back of that, I dug back into the Jane Austen ephemera because I was like have I, is there any of her stuff that I haven't read and there's this book of um Lady Susan the Watsons and a third one that I haven't read yet but I read Lady Susan and the Watsons they're kind of Lady Susan wasn't published in her lifetime the Watsons wasn't published in her lifetime I don't think and was incomplete as well it was great joining the dots of of Jane Austen I think what I'm going to do after I'm off this podcast is get in the bath and read the third one whose name I've forgotten but yeah always fun to kind of go back to classic authors that you love and feel like you know inside out and 
just check if you really have read all of them. Yeah, a stone cold take. Jane Austen is good. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? There's this lady on the back notes. Don't know if you know her. I've discovered her. Oh, yeah. No, it is that Barbie movie thing of like, there is something like that is just so comforting about settling down on a day that you feel slightly sad or slightly happy and just enjoying some time with old Jane. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, it's The Haunted Mansion, and I got to talk to its director, Justin Simeon. We'll also be looking at Rom-Com, Red, White, and Royal Blue. And for Film Club, we're watching The Old Dark House. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Catherine Bray and Yasmin Omar. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.